relationships. <laughs> There's lots of different kinds, and they all hit significant road bumps. Relationships between children and parents, marriage relationships, friendships, co-workers, relationships with all sorts of relatives. Some people have gotten so burned by relationships that they have grown reclusive, seeking less and less interaction with people. Tim Lane and Paul Tripp have written a great little book, Relationships, A Mess Worth Making. I love the title, A Mess Worth Making. In the book, they show how God does it and how we can too. Well, this morning in Numbers chapter 15, we see the great lengths that God goes to in order to restore the relationship that he has with his people who continually grumble and complain and rebel against him that we might see it and receive it as God's word. Let's go to him in prayer. Indeed, O Lord, you are the God of revelation. You will reveal yourself that you might be known. And so we pray that as we hear your word read and proclaimed, that your Holy Spirit would come and bear witness to that, that we would hear your word as your word, that we would receive it as such, and that we would be transformed, that we would go away from this place different, because you have spoken to us by your word. And so as always, we pray for the preacher. We know that he is not worthy, but by your grace, he is able. And so it is through Jesus Christ that we pray. Amen. Before we dig into chapter 15, I want to do a very quick review of the last couple of chapters that set this up, because otherwise chapter 15 really seems like it's out of place, that it seems like a random set of uh, offering commandments, but they're here because of a rebellion that has been going on and it reminds us, uh, points to the fact that God is always working to restore relationships with those who rebel against him, that God takes the initiative and paves the way for that to happen. So we remember that back in chapter 10 is when the march begins across the promise or to the promised land. So a year of preparation, more than a year of preparation and now this march across the wilderness toward the promised land begins. And the Lord is out front, manifested as the cloud and represented by the Ark of the Covenant, scattering the enemies and leading the elect nation. And then Numbers chapter 11, we have the rabble and the quail. Not the rabbit, but the rabble and the quail. Remember that the, uh, no sooner does the march begin, but so does all the complaining and grumbling. The rabble and I love that word, the rabble were those who had joined with Israel, that when Israel had uh, left Egypt, that they had been delivered, that the Egyptians and others that had come along with, they were amazed at this God who could do these miraculous things. But they are now out in the wilderness, and they don't like how things are going. And so the rabble dictates the conversation, leading complaints against the Lord, rather than offering supplication, prayer requests to the Lord seeking for their needs. And then that took us to chapter 12 and the gossip grumblings, but also gospel grace. There's more grumbling, this time behind Moses' back out of a bad heart. Miriam and Aaron, who are his brother and sister and who are leaders as well, are convicted of their sin of jealousy. And Moses intercedes on their behalf and asks the Lord to forgive them, and particularly for Miriam who leads that. And so the Lord graciously provides a process of restoration for Miriam. And you recall that the people do not move until Miriam is completely restored to the community. And then Numbers chapter 13, 
10 were bad and two were good, right? The 12 men who went to spy out Canaan. There were the bad, uh, the 10 who were bad that were the people who rebel against the Lord. And the Lord um, uh, saw that the, the rebellion in their heart was that they could only see the problems and in unbelief want to give up. The two who were good, Joshua and Caleb, were the two who saw the Lord and in belief want to go up. But the bad ones spend the ba- spread the bad report, a whispering report, and encourage unbelief among the community. And so last week we saw that in chapter 14, that response to the report and the response to the response, that the response to the report was a rebellion among the people, rebelling against the Lord. And the Lord responds by saying, fine, I'm going to destroy the whole nation. But again, Moses intercedes and asks that the Lord would forgive the people. And so the Lord graciously forgives the nation, but the consequence is still there, and the nation will remain in the desert for 40 years. And the children, the second generation, will be the ones to enter the promised land. And so we've already seen twice that Moses intercedes for the people asking the Lord to forgive the rebellious and sinful people, foreshadowing the work of Jesus Christ who continually intercedes on our behalf. The Lord, even now, sitting at the right hand of God the Father, interceding on our behalf, asking the Lord to continue to forgive us. And we are forgiven because of what Jesus Christ has done for us. And so that takes us to chapter 15. And it has four sections to it. We're going to read them each in part, beginning with verses 1 through 12 in the atonement offerings there. Listen to God's word. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, after you enter the land I am giving you as a home, and you present to the Lord offerings made by fire from the herd or the flock as an aroma pleasing to the Lord, whether burnt offerings or sacrifices for special vows or freewill offerings or festival offerings. Then the one who brings his offering shall present to the Lord a grain offering of a tenth of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a quarter of a hin of oil with each lamb for the burnt offering uh, or the sacrifice. Prepare a quarter of a hin of wine as a drink offering. With a ram, prepare a grain offering of two tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with a third of a hin of oil and a third of a hin of wine as a drink offering. Offer it as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. When you prepare a young bull as a burnt offering or sacrifice for a special vow or a fellowship offering to the Lord, bring with the bull a grain offering of three-tenths of an ephah, a fine flour mixed with a half a hint of oil. Also bring half a hint of wine as a drink offering. It will be an offering made by fire, an aroma pleasing to the Lord. Each bull or ram, each lamb or young goat is to be prepared in this manner. Do this for each one, for as many as you prepare. Now in this passage, before we get to all the offering regulations, we first see immediately God's persevering grace. Verse 2, after you enter the land, I am giving you as a home. I am still giving you this land. Even though You've been disobedient. You've acted in unbelief again and again. Even though you have been rebellious against me, and even though I've told you that a generation will die in the desert, I am bringing you into the land. So the offerings don't purchase God's grace. They are a response to God's grace. The fact that the offerings are received is an assurance of God's grace. It is 
hard to apologize to someone you have wronged, especially when they give every indication that they don't want to hear your apology and they have no indication of forgiving you. However, with God, he says, I have already forgiven you and I've already decided to remember your sins no more. So go ahead and apologize so that you can hear me accept your apology and you can know that our relationship is completely restored. The offerings are this sort of implicit assurance that God will bring them into the land as promised. He says, after you enter the land that I am giving you as a home, you present to the Lord offerings made by fire. I'm bringing you into this land and there'll be such blessing that you'll have abundant enough herds that you can bring these offerings. So that not only is the relationship restored, but here is the means by which to keep the relationship strong. Now, the regulations for these offerings remind me of a value meal. The offering of the animal is to be accompanied by the side dish, more carbohydrates, right? Flour with oil, and then also a drink. So you got the meat, you got the fries, you got the drink. And as the size of the animal increases from lamb or goat to ram to bull, then you also need to supersize the flour and the drink offering as well. So you see that with the lamb, it's a tenth of flour and a quarter of wine. But with the ram, it's two tenths of epha and a third of wine. With the bull, it's three tenths of epha and a half a hen of wine. So the amount increases as the size of the animal does. All of which then is an aroma pleasing to the Lord that points to the perfect offering of Jesus Christ. The perfect aroma through Christ, our relationship with the Lord is completely restored. And so that takes us to verses 13 to 21. Listen again to God's word. Everyone who is native born must do these things in this way when he brings an offering made by fire as an aroma pleasing to the Lord. For the generations to come, whenever an alien or anyone else living among you presents an offering made by fire as an aroma pleasing to the Lord, he must do exactly as you do. The community is to have the same rules for you and for the alien living among you. This is a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. You and the alien shall be the same before the Lord. The same laws and regulations will apply to you, both to you and the alien living among you. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, when you enter the land which I am giving you and you eat the food of the land, present a portion as an offering to the Lord, present a cake from the first of your ground meal, present it as an offering from the threshing floor throughout the generations to come. You are to give this offering to the Lord from the first of your ground meal. See in this that God makes no distinction between native-born Israelites and aliens, those who have become a part of Israel but were not native-born. The community is to have the same rules for you and for the alien living among you, a lasting ordinance for the generations to come. And that is still the case, even more so in Christ. Galatians 3.28 is where we read, there is neither Jew nor Greek, slave nor free, male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We are one in Christ, no matter what our background, no matter where we came from or what our road is, we are one in Christ. It is Jesus Christ's sacrifice that atones for all who place their trust in him as their sacrifice. 
So there is no room for favoritism, giving to some more uh, credence than others. We are one in Christ. Now, many of us are native church members, covenant children who grew up in a Christian home and came to Christ at such a young age, we don't even remember it happening. We've always known the Lord, as far as we can tell. And yet others of us are aliens who are outside of the covenant community, grew up not in a Christian home, or perhaps one that was Christian in name only, but were not really raised in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. And we sometimes hear testimonies of those who grew up and were outside the church and the rough road they had, and they had a dramatic conversion. And we might be tempted to say, wow, I wish I had a testimony like that. Ask anyone who has that kind of a testimony whether they would rather have that testimony or a testimony of having known the Lord's love all their life and never had to go through the gutter in the first place. And you can guess what their answer would be. No one would rather live in misery than to live in God's covenant love. So for those who have known much misery and then come to know God's love, it is a wonderful testimony to God's saving grace and powerful love. But never lose sight of God's wonderful love and the privilege of growing up in the covenant community, always knowing of his love and care, and to know that regardless, we really are one in Christ. And so that takes us to verses 22 to 36. Listen to this interesting section. Now, if you unintentionally fail to keep any of these commands the Lord gave Moses, any of the Lord's commands to you through him from the day the Lord gave them and continuing through the generations to come, and if this is done unintentionally without the community being aware of it, then the whole community is to offer a young bull for a burnt offering as an aroma pleasing to the Lord, along with its prescribed grain offering and drink offering and a male goat for a sin offering. The priest is to make atonement for the whole Israelite community and they will be forgiven for it was not intentional and they have brought to the Lord for their wrong an offering made by fire and a sin offering. The whole Israelite community and the aliens living among them will be forgiven because all the people were involved in the unintentional wrong. But if just one person sins unintentionally, he must bring a year-old female goat for a sin offering. The priest is to make atonement before the Lord for the one who erred by sinning unintentionally, and when atonement has been made for him, he will be forgiven. One and the same law applies to everyone who sins unintentionally, whether he is native, Israelite, or an alien. But anyone who sins defiantly, whether native-born or alien, blasphemes the Lord. And that person must be cut off from his people because he has despised the Lord's word and broken his commands. That person must surely be cut off. His guilt remains on him. Let me pause there for a moment. It's a common misunderstanding to say that all sins are equal. They are not. It is true that we are all equally sinners, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. All sins are offenses against God, and all need the atoning sacrifice of Christ. All sins are equally sufficient to bring eternal condemnation, and so only Christ can bring us forgiveness. However, 
in the succinct words of the Shorter Catechism, some sins in themselves and by reason of several aggravations are more heinous in the sight of God than others. Some, because of their several aggravations, are more heinous in the sight of God than others. Well, what are those several aggravations, you ask? I'm glad you asked. The larger catechism has four paragraphs, too long to read now, so let me summarize. First, if the person knows better, you know better. Second, if it is more directly against God and against others. Third, if it is not just a heart sin, but actions that clearly break the law, especially when you've already been warned. And so it's done deliberately and maliciously. And then fourth, if it's done on the Lord's day or in public and in a way that encourages others to sin. The Bible shows that some sins are more heinous by the fact that the consequences are more severe. God's direct punishments against certain sins are far more severe than others. Miriam's rebellion resulted in her being a week outside the camp, but then restored. The nation's rebellion meant that the whole nation would remain outside the promised land for 40 years. In some cases, the sin brings death. And so in our passage, we see that the intentional sins are more heinous. You did it on purpose. And so they bring greater punishment. Verse 30, anyone who sins defiantly, whether native-born or alien, blasphemes the Lord, and that person must be cut off from his people. So sometimes the sin is unintentional, but it still needs to be dealt with. We can all tell stories and give accounts of times that there has been an offense in a relationship. And the offense was not on purpose, but it still left a mark. It still needs to be dealt with. How can I make it up to you? Now, there are some people who have no interest in restoring a relationship once they have been offended. And there's also people who have no intention of ever apologizing or repenting. But if there has been offense and the offender wants to make amends, do we not have a process and do we not want a process for restoring that relationship? The answer is yes. And the Lord provides this process so that the relationship can be restored between he and his people and that they can know that that relationship is restored. And so it is that we can have the same sort of thing in our horizontal relationships. Verses 22 to 26 tell us that the whole community, in fact, must make the offering because the whole community was involved. What about that? Isn't that incredible? It's a community. We're in this together. And the sin of one affects us all. Verse 27, if just one person sins unintentionally, someone who does something but not because of community neglect, and there's um, something for that. But the point here is to see that intentional sins, deliberate sins, malicious sins, sins where the person has no intention of repenting are more heinous, and such a person is to be cut off from his people. Well, Pastor Dan, can you give us an example of that? Sure. Verses 32 to 36. Here we go. While the Israelites were in the desert, a man was found gathering wood on the Sabbath day. Those who found him gathering wood brought him to Moses and Aaron and the whole assembly, and they kept him in custody because it was not clear what should be done to him. Then the Lord said to Moses, the man must die. The whole assembly must stone him outside the camp. So the assembly took him outside the camp and stoned him to death 
as the Lord commanded Moses. A man gathering wood on the Sabbath who is stoned to death for it. Seems like an outrageous punishment for a menial offense, doesn't it? Well, it's because this was not unintentional. It's a defiant sin. In fact, it's a double of defiance because not only was gathering wood a work and so a violation of the Sabbath, but the reason for gathering wood was in order to make a fire on the Sabbath, which was explicitly forbidden. And so this case study here shows a person who is committing one sin in order to be able to commit another sin. It's like stealing something in order to use that something to kill somebody. It's a double defiance. And so here also you have a person who knew better And so he does this maliciously, intentionally. He's essentially saying, yeah, what are you going to do about it? The death penalty by public stoning was the community's rejection of the offense. Now, using that, uh, there's lots of abuses potentially to that passage. And in our New Testament reading from Matthew 23, we are reminded of the Pharisees who certainly abused this passage and ones like it. The Pharisees wanted to kill Jesus, and so they determined that Christ healing on the Sabbath or feeding hungry disciples on the Sabbath was worthy of the death penalty. And Jesus says, do not do what they do, for they do not practice what they preach. And then what about contemporary application about the Sabbath? Because for us today, Sunday is the Christian Sabbath, the Lord's Day. And there are some who would say that they are strict Sabbatarians who seek to follow the Sabbath laws as closely as possible. And some of you remember the days when the whole community did this, the days of blue laws that essentially prohibited stores from being open so that people didn't work on Sundays. We now live in a culture that largely ignores and in fact defies the Lord's day. The Lord's people should not ignore the Lord's day. We have been more shaped by the culture than by Christ in this. When the Christian community encourages defiance of the Lord's day, or if we turn a blind eye to those who neglect the Lord's day, we dishonor the Lord and harm our witness. I'm not looking to take a hard line on this, but a heart line on this. Where is the heart that treats the Lord's day no differently than the rest of the days? Is it any wonder that we are so physically and mentally and spiritually exhausted. God has established a day for us to be renewed, to find our rest in him. And is it any wonder that we feel disconnected from Christ and his church when the things of the world take such precedence? I am concerned for those who disconnect from the church community and complain about feeling disconnected. And I'm concerned for those who complain when the community exhorts or admonishes them. The Lord's Day is a weekly opportunity for covenant renewal. We gather to worship God and to have our relationship restored and strengthened. And all that takes us to the last section, beginning at verse 37. The Lord said to Moses, speak to the Israelites and say to them, throughout the generations to come, you are to make tassels on the corners of your garments. With a blue cord on each tassel, You will have these tassels to look at, and so you will remember all the commands of the Lord, that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by going after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. Then you will remember to obey all my commands and will be consecrated to your God. I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. 
I am the Lord your God. Antinomianism is the fancy theological word that describes the unbiblical notion that because we are saved by grace, we don't need to obey the law, that we have a freedom from the law. Antinomian is anti-law. Our passage shows us that there is actually freedom from the law. There is freedom that comes from following the law. The law's commands are a gift of grace. The Lord tells them to make tassels on the corners of your garments. Then you will remember to obey all my commands and will be consecrated to your God. In the Great Commission, we are called to baptize, but also to teach everything, to teach to obey everything that I have commanded you. The tassels remind us that the law is good, that following God's law leads us to the most abundant life, The God who created us and all things tells us how to live in order to enjoy him the most fully. There are actually three uses of the law. The first, which is sometimes called the pedagogical use because it's the one that teaches us, that the law teaches us what is right and wrong, but it teaches us our need for Christ. It exposes what we have done and shows us that we need Christ in order to be able to repent and to walk in freedom. There's also then what's called the civil use that we recognize that the laws are simply good for society. They're not just good for believers, they're good for everyone. Do not murder, do not steal, do not cheat. These are just good things for everyone to obey. And then the normative or moral use that doing these things really allow us to flourish most fully. That the God who created us in all things knows how best to live. And so he directs us how to live. So there's in this, this reminder that breaking the commands also comes with a reminder of commands for atonement and for the restoration of relationship. And again, there's abuses of this command and we saw it in the New Testament reading, uh, almost hilariously so, that the Pharisees, Uh, Everything they do is for men to see. They make their phylacteries wide and the tassels on their garments long. The tassels were to be a reminder to yourself to follow God's commands, not a means of showing off to others, showing off your tassels. Hey, nice tassels. We often do those external things. Wow, look at those great external things. And that's the nature of hypocrisy. The tassels were to help you notice the heart not to notice the tassels. The tassels were to help you remember God. I am the Lord your God who brought you out of Egypt to be your God. Do we not want to remember the Lord our God who delivered us from sin? Do we not want to remember the Lord our God who has restored the relationship at the cost of his own son? Do we not want to remember the Lord our God who has revealed his commands so that we can glorify and enjoy him forever and ever? may that truth set us free. Amen.